Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Yo, 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 yo. Hey, hi, hello, and welcome to another edition of NBA Today, that hoop ball presentation. I'm your host, Corbin Ford. You can follow me at Corbin NBA. You can follow Hoop Ball at Hoop Ball Tweets on Twitter and hoop-ball.com on the internet to check out that great NBA fantasy basketball coverage. Yes, I am fully aware, as I'm sure we all are, that the NBA is currently not in action, obviously due to COVID-19. However, it's a great resource to still take advantage of. A bunch of great quality articles, resources, and a couple of really cool podcasts, including this one, that you can definitely get all caught up on during this long layoff. Hope everyone's doing good. Hope everyone's just chilling. Uh, <laughs> that's all I can really say, keeping yourself clean, um, keeping those hands clean, maintain the social distancing, and being more responsible with it now as things start to open back up. Um, already addressed how the NBA is looking into this and possibly responding to it on my previous episode, so definitely check that out. But I am back to hop into that Corbin replay machine. Yes, it has been a while. It's been a while, but I am back. Finishing the 1989 season, or should I say continuing the 1989 season. It's probably going to be three parts, and I am currently in that second part. We talked about the Cellar Dwellers a couple weeks back. Make sure to check that out. Looked on those teams who didn't quite have enough and, you know, it kind of is in the name. They're cellar dwellers for a reason. And so those teams are the Miami Heat, the Charlotte Hornets, San Antonio Spurs, Los Angeles Clippers, New Jersey Nets, Sacramento Kings, Indiana Pacers, and the Dallas Mavericks. Worst team, obviously, in the whole NBA was the 1567 Heat and worked our way up to the 38 and 44 Mavericks, who just finished outside of that playoff bubble. So now we're going to do the middle of the pack. I guess you can call them contenders, or at least in various stages of contention in 1989. And we are starting with the Portland Trailblazers. So the Trailblazers finished 39-43, and 43, which is a losing record, but good enough to get to the playoffs that year. Uh, they were pretty good at home, going 28-13. and 13. They did not take care of business on the road, going 11-30. and 30. Um, Against the West, Western opponents, they were a lot more competitive, going 30-28. and 28, And they didn't hold a candle to the East, which did have... Some dominant teams, Pistons, Celtics were good, Cavs, the Bulls, um, and they went 9-15 and against those teams. So that tells you uh, all you need to know right there. Pre-All-Star game, uh, the Trailblazers were 25-21. and After the All-Star game, they kind of stumbled to the finish going 14-22. and So now we're going to go into their lineup, starting lineups for the Blazers at point guard. Terry Porter, who averaged 17.7 points a game, 4.5 rebounds a night, along with 9.5 assists. He also had 9.2 win shares. Shooting guard, 
the great Clyde Drexler. 27.2 points per game, 7.9 rebounds, just over 5.5 assists, and he had 12.6 win shares. Then at small forward, you had the running athletic versatile Jerome Kersey. A little bit of everything, 17.5 points, 8.3 rebounds, 3.2 assists, um, and 6.8 win shares. At power forward, old, old Caldwell Jones played, but the starter, and it's funny, because Caldwell Jones actually got the most minutes, uh, played <laughs> just under 1,300, 2.8 points, 4.2 rebounds, but Mark Bryant, the big bruising power forward, was their starting power of choice, um, he only averaged 5 points and 3 rebounds, but you know, in the 80s, toughness, and uh, uh, yeah, toughness, because <laughs> he wasn't really a great shooter, and obviously wasn't looking to score the ball, and at center, Kevin Duckworth, uh, talented, but I, I guess I could say weight-troubled, um, attitude-troubled center. Known for a really interesting one-handed jump shot. Really solid low-post moves. Uh, 18 points a night, 8 rebounds, just under an assist per game, uh, and 4.8 win shares. And you still had Sam Bowie still getting some action. Uh, only played 400 minutes, but 8 points and 5 rebounds to go along with just under 2 assists a night for the first overall pick or was it the second overall pick in the 1984 NBA draft? All right, so going into some notables for the Trailblazers that year, you had two players in the top 20 um, in minutes played. That was Terry Porter and Clyde Drexler, who finished 8th and 11th, respectively. Clyde was 5th in field goal attempts and 5th in field goals made that season. Terry Porter was 15th in three-pointers made and 12th in three-pointers attempted. Uh, Terry Porter was also fourth in the league in assists that season. Uh, you had three players in the top 20 for offensive rebounds. That was Clyde Drexler, Kevin Duckworth, and Jerome Kersey. Uh, PR, Clyde Drexler was sixth with 23.6. And uh, Vorp, valuable replacement player, Clyde Drexler was fifth at 6.6. Got to the free throw line a lot. Drexler did, finishing 11th in attempts and 13th in makes. And honestly, solid team. All things considered, uh, the Trailblazers. Uh, they weren't quite the dominant powerhouse they would be, uh, I guess, um, later on in the late 80s through early 90s once they acquired uh, Buck Williams and um, really made that run to the NBA Finals in both the next year after this, 1990, as well as 1992. That solidified their power forward position. Uh, Clyde Drexler only got even better, crazily enough, and Terry Porter really solidified himself as a really solid I guess you could say combo guard. He played point guard, but really was a lot more offensively minded, and it only got better from there for the Blazers. But in this one, um, in this particular season, you know, again, a solid team. I think Caldwell Jones played a little bit more than you would have hoped for, and that was because injuries did play a big part. Uh, starting power forward Mark Bryant only played 56 games. Um, aside from that, the backcourt was pretty pretty durable uh 70 games played for terry porter 81 no 81 games played for terry porter 78 games played for clyde drexler 76 played for jerome kersey and uh 79 for duckworth but then after that you had pretty much a revolving door outside of the steady uh six-man steve johnson uh it was really just kind of getting minutes where you could and it wasn't really a lot of depth outside of those top five so that's where the blazers finished uh coaching staff you had, for this starter, Mike Schuler, who started the season, had a lot of issues with Clyde Drexler, um, among other players, went 25-22, and, and then was replaced with the great Rick Adelman, who 
finished the season 14-21, was still trying to find his way. Again, he succeeded along with the rest of the Blazers later on with those two final appearances, and then we obviously know his great coaching career um, after that. But you had Schuler and then Adam, and you also had former Blazer Maurice Lucas, Jack Shalo, and John Wetzel as assistant coaches for the Portland Trailblazers. So that puts them just in the playoff bubble. As far as the NBA settings were concerned, they were... I guess solid. Um, Again, this was interesting for the West. They had the 17th best record in the NBA in totality. So we're still going with teams that made the playoffs but had losing records, and we are moving on to the number 16th best record in the NBA in 1989, the Washington Bullets. Yes, they were not the Wizards just yet. They finished 40 and 42 overall. Let's run through some standings records here. They really took care of business at home going 30 and 11. You basically take that and flip it on its head for how they did away from home going 10 and 31. Um, against the Eastern Conference, uh, they were scrappy, 25 and 31. Still lost more games, but they were in there. Um, I guess the West, they went 15 and 11, which was pretty solid. Started off kind of slow in November 4 and 7, in uh, December 4 and 11. And then they won more games than they lost in January. Went back to losing more games than they won in February. Had a really strong March going 11-6. And, and then they finished going 7-5. and five. So Washington Bullets here, um, just running through their starting lineup. For them, it was Terry Catledge. And there's interesting uh, names here for sure. So <laughs> I'm kind of being reintroduced here. Ter- um, Terry Catledge, power forward. Charles Jones, another Jones brother, Caldwell, Charles, um, I feel it was Major, there was a few Jones brothers who all played surprising long careers, uh, even being long and thin um, at big positions along the 80s and 90s, really interesting how that happened, Um, the great Bernard King played at small forward, Jeff Malone at shooting guard, and Daryl Walker played point guard for them. So just running through the stats there, Walker averaged nine points, six and a half rebounds a game, along with six assists a night, 3.7 win shares. Jeff Malone and Bernard King was where you're getting the majority of your scoring from. Malone averaged 21.7 points, 2.4 rebounds, 2.9 assists, and 4.1 win shares. Bernard King averaged 20 points, 4.7 rebounds, and 3.6 a night. And this is just him continuing to recover from the devastating knee injuries that he had um, to finish his career with the Knicks. So he's just coming back, missed a year, and is putting up his high-scoring ways. Beast in transition, really good fadeaway jumper, um, just could score with the best of them. And imposing frame, uh, just signature two-handed dunks. This is Bernard King we're talking about, one of the greats, at least scoring. Uh, Terry Catledge, we're definitely going to score more, um, but at the time... 10 points, 7.2 rebounds, and just under an assist a night. And then Charles Jones. Again, these Jones brothers didn't really put too much on the stat sheet, but they were durable and they played a while. So uh, Jones had 2.6 points, 4.8 rebounds, just under an assist a night, and 1.6 win shares for him. Uh, Notable backups, you had Horace Grant's brother, who was good in his own right, Harvey Grant. Um, This season only had 5.6 points, 2.3 rebounds, and just over an assist a game. John Williams, um, another kind of stocky forward, for the Bullets, 13.7 points, 7.0 rebounds, so exactly 7 rebounds a night, to go along with 4.3 assists, a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades there. Um, Steve Coulter, uh, I guess you could say steady backup point guard, um, 6.7 points, 2.3 rebounds, and 2.8 assists per night for him, and that really was more of just the, I guess, statistical lineup of um, 
roster players for the Wizards. Wizards, bullets. I am losing it here, y'all. All right, so just some notables. Uh, John Williams played all 82 games. That was solid. You had two players in the top 20 for um, two-point field goal attempts, and that was obviously the guys I just mentioned that kind of did the bulk of the scoring for the Wizards, being Jeff Malone and Bernard King. You also had two players in the top 20 in field goals missed, which, <laughs> you guessed it, Jeff Malone and Bernard King. Um, Daryl Walker finished uh, 20th in assists in the NBA that season with 496, which, hey, is top 20. Um, but he was a beast defensively. He finished 16th with two steals a night. Um, and he was just, in general, someone who you could definitely watch playing the passing lanes and really wreaking havoc on that way. He also finished 17th in steal percentage. Um, John Williams also made the top 20 for that. Defensive box plus minus, again, you go back to Williams and Walker, who will both finish in the top 20 there as well. Um, field goals made, again, two in the top 20, Jeff Malone and Bernard King. You weren't getting a lot of three-point shooting out of these guys. Um, in fact, at all, that really was not their game. Um, in terms of the most threes made was 19 by John Williams. Um, and then you had Mark Aleri with 13, and nobody else reached double digits the whole season on three-point shooting. Um, Jeff Malone did not do it well, um, talking like 5%. Bernard King, 16%. John Williams, 26%. Again, the three-pointer wasn't a big um, weapon, then it was still kind of evolving, but for the Wizards, it wasn't even, I mean, the Wizards, I gotta stop saying that, y'all, it's going crazy. For the Bullets, it wasn't anywhere near that for them. Um, it just wasn't something they used. Uh, Bernard King and Jeff Malone were a lot better going 20 feet and in. Uh, Darrell Walker, I get, would shoot the three, but again, his range was more in that 20 feet and in, 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 um, territory. And Terry Catlitz liked to do most of his damage around the basket, and, uh, you know, Charles Jones didn't really like to damage, um, at all offensively speaking. So that was the offensive firepower you had there. A lot of 20-foot jumpers coming off of screens and curls for Jeff Malone. A lot of stuff in transition and post-ups for Bernard King. All right, coaching staff. Wes Unseld, former great bullet himself, was the coach. Bob Ferry was the executive, um, the father of Danny Ferry, who we should get to later on coming down here um, in this season. Recap, um, assistant coaches... Just in terms of the coaching staff, you had Bill Blair and Jeff Zellick, um, and that was really it for them. And, uh, you know, again, middling team, um, 14th in points per game, uh, 9th in pace, uh, kind of in the back of the pack in offensive rating, and pretty much middle of the pack toward the bottom third um, in defensive rating. So you basically got just what their record showed, a team that was mediocre, it was decent at times, but definitely wasn't blowing um, the doors open or really wreaking havoc, making themselves a force in the Eastern Conference. All right, so the next team we are on to now is the once great, at this point, Boston Celtics. Celtics had a dominant run in the 1980s, going to the finals five times, winning in three of those times. However, by this point, it was really the beginning of the end. Um, even if they didn't really quite know it, it was getting there. Uh, Casey Jones had played... The Celtics' big three, just so many minutes in those years had finally caught up with them. Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, and Kevin McHale were just going up and down all the time, playing almost 40 minutes a night on the regular. Dennis Johnson was reaching the end. Denny Ainge had been there a while, and injuries were hitting all of them. Uh, this year alone was 
was an injury racked year, but especially for one Larry Bird who had heel surgery that year that only that limited basically to six games. So he was a non-factor. Um, Danny Ainge kind of came through with his best offensive season, and the Celtics as a whole just were bombing away threes. Um, but then, midway through the year, the Celtics, to get some more front court depth, basically traded or offloaded Danny Ainge to the Sacramento Kings, which kind of hit their guard play, especially since uh, you had a, a Brian Shaw and you had a, a Reggie Lewis at the, at the time, but um, Dennis Johnson was still getting minutes, and he was literally just in his next to last season, the NBA wasn't ever a very good outside shooter. And, you know, the quality of play that the Celtics wanted to play along with the way that their lead guard wanted to play was a little bit different. And it was just a a season in transition. Even so the Boston Celtics finished 42 and 40, which is the first winning record we've gotten to here. I'm going 32 and nine at home, still dominant 10 and 31 at home. I mean, 10 and 31 away, which isn't great. Against Eastern Conference opponents, they went 27 and 29. Against Western Conference opponents, they went 15 and 11. And they kind of finished middle of the pack every month: eight and seven in November, five and seven in December, seven and eight in January, six and seven in February. Then March, they had a really good month, getting 11 wins, only four losses. And then April, kind of stumbling to the finish line with five wins, two seven losses. So going through the starting lineup for the Boston Celtics, the ideal starting lineup of course, was the same one they've been using for so much of the 80s. Danny Ainge, Larry Bird, Dennis Johnson, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish. Um, soon, though, especially with the loss of Larry Bird so early, you end up going with lineups that featured uh, Brian Shaw and Jim Paxson more, um, and then eventually uh, back of big man Brad, Luhas would get more run, Reggie Lewis would get a crack at it, and then it would kind of settle to a starting lineup by the middle of the season of Danny Ainge, Dennis Johnson, Reggie Lewis, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish. And Reggie Lewis was an intriguing offensive talent. Um, unfortunately, we know him as just being gone way, way too soon, but he was someone who created his own shot, gave a very good, much-needed burst of athleticism and shot creation of this Boston Celtics team, and really kind of found his way in that starting small forward spot for the Celtics. So that was one good revelation that came out of it, and again, it's so tragic that you know, not a couple of years later, he did tragically lose his life. But the revelation of Reggie Lewis as being someone who would really be a player in this league um, became apparent in the 1989 season when he was starting for most of it in place of Larry Bird. So going through some of the statistics here, uh, again, Dennis Johnson starting at point guard, 10 points, 2.6 rebounds, 6.6 assists tonight. Shooting guard was Brian Shaw um, after the trade of Danny Ainge, who averaged 8.6 points, 4.6 rebounds, and 5.8 assists per game. So you had a good uh, assist offensive distribution in the backcourt with both of them being essentially point guards but kind of switching back and forth. Um, Reggie Lewis was small forward, especially after Larry Bird. Um, he pl- he finished with 18 points a night along with 4.7 rebounds and 2.7 assists. I will throw in Larry Bird's statistics even though it was only through six games, but still. 19 points, six rebounds, and four and a half assists a night. Power forward, Kevin McHale, still going strong. Um, hasn't slowed down quite yet. He had 22 points a night, along with 8 rebounds and 2.2 assists. And then, again, someone still going strong. Old man Riverwalk before uh, Tim Duncan. Robert Parrish with 18 points, 12 rebounds, and 2.2 assists per night. Uh, before Danny Ainge was traded, again, he was having his best offensive season in his career. 15.9 points, 3.4 rebounds, and 4.8 assists. Um, notable backups 
for the Celtics. He made a trade that sent Ed Pinkney over Ed Pinkney over to Boston from Sacramento. He had 10 points a night along with five rebounds and an assist and a half. Brad Luhaus played and got 5.6 points and three rebounds a night to go along with an assist. Kevin Gamble was a swingman for the Celtics. Didn't really give you too much, four points and one rebound. Um, Mark Akers was a backup big man with two points, two rebounds. And that was really it. Uh, Jim Paxson, you have to make note of him, eight points, one and a half rebounds and just over or just under two assists tonight. Um, and that was really kind of the weakness for the Celtics, as it was just in general, their bench was lackluster, except for a really glorious 1986 season, you would really have to check back and see just how rough some of the bench was, and a lot of that was just because they didn't really get a lot of minutes together, I mean, they really didn't, a lot of the starting minutes were played, or a lot of starting minutes, a lot of the minutes were played by the starting lineup, who really took a lion's share of that, and it kind of, unfortunately, ran them to the ground, but the quality of those players was so good, that definitely kept them afloat, but toward the end of this decade, the cracks starting to show, as those players starting to wear down, and because the bench wasn't fully developed and or um, getting enough reps, their weaknesses started to show as well. So this was like the last kind of good season for Boston. They would still make the playoffs a couple years later. Um, and then by 1994, you know, the bottom would fall out on the Celtics as they stood from 1980 through 1994. Um, but this was really the beginning of the end. They would not make the finals again. Um, in fact, their 87 appearance was their last one until 21 years later in 2008. All right, so going through some notables for the Celtics here. Just checking out where they finished offensively, statistic-wise. Um, Brian Shaw played all 82 games for them, which was good, especially in such an injury-riddled year. Uh, Three-point field goal attempts. Danny Ainge, before he was gone, he was third. Uh, in totality, at 305, which was a lot back then. He knocked down 116, which was fifth in the league. Um, Kevin McHale... 66% field goal percentage. That was 17th in the league. Um, he also finished 16th in field goal makes with, six, with um, 661. And he was 12th in free throw attempts and 14th in free throws made. So that was solid. He was, again, an offensive weapon, even more so with the lack of Larry Bird. He had two plays in the top 20 for the Celtics in field goal percentage. That was Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. Um, Robert Parrish also had a very strong season, even more offensively minded. He was good finishing around the basket. He had a really almost unblockable turnaround jump shot, but he went to it a lot more as you needed more offensive weapons to step up because you are losing, what, 27-7-7 and with the loss of Larry Bird. So people need to fill in those gaps. Dennis Johnson finished 19th in the league that season with 6.6 assists per game. Robert Parrish was third in the league with 12.5 rebounds a game. He had two plays in the top 20 in PER. Again, the big men, Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. Parrish also finished sixth in offensive rebounding percentage and second in defensive rebound percentage. Total rebound percentage, he was first with 20.1. Um, and that was really it for your notables as far as the Boston Celtics were concerned. A lot of threes were knocked down by this team, which is great. Like I said, we already mentioned um, Danny Ainge before leaving. He attempted 155 and knocked down 58 of them. Um, aside from that, though, wasn't too hot um, just across the board. And so that was unfortunate, but Danny Ainge put in enough already that he, like, single-handedly, 58 of the 78 that the Celtics made, and only shot 25% from three, were knocked in from Danny. So uh, current uh, Boston GM definitely adopted the long ball and made it his own going into the 1990 season, um, finishing off there. Uh, coach for the Celtics, uh, this was after Casey Jones, was Jimmy Rogers. Um, assistant coaches for that team, Included an ex-player. Um, let me get this right here for you just to make sure I am pronouncing this correctly because <laughs> that is important. Jeez, um, why can't I find it now? Uh, 
losing, losing. I hate that time, but you're gonna have to bear with me, y'all. So much numbers and stuff pulled up that I may have accidentally forgot. But you have Chris Ford, um, who knocked down the first ever NBA three-pointer. Lanny Van Eman, who was an assistant coach, and that was it. Ed Lacerte was the trainer. That was your uh, assistant coaches and staff for the Boston Celtics. And like I said, a lot of injuries, but you did have one kind of sign of the future looking at the strong play of Reggie Lewis and the really solid play of one Brian Shaw. So that was something there for Boston. But at the time, they thought, hey, listen, you know, Larry Bird was just out. He's our main weapon. We'll be back. And unfortunately, it wasn't ever going to be quite as it was. All right, so our next team now is the Golden State Warriors. Golden State Warriors finished the 1989 season going 43-39. and 39. They went 29-12 and 12 at home, did not take care of business on the road, going 14-27. and 27. They were they had a winning um, average against teams in the East, going 14-10, and 10, and they were dead even against the West, going 29-29. and 29. Um, Just in general, November, they went 6-7. and seven. December, they went 5-7. and seven. January, they went 11-5. and five. Then February, they went 9-2. and two followed by a 9-10 March to close out with the 3-8 April. So this was the run TMC Warriors with Don Nelson, but it really wasn't the run TMC. It was really just the run MC. Uh, they didn't get Tim Hardaway, the point guard, and really the engine there, until the following year. So for this team, a lot of their offensive firepower came from the M and the C, which was uh, Chris Mullen and Mitch Richmond. They were the ones who really did a lot of the scoring there. You could see the the benchmark, the blueprint for this offensive weapon that would really take flight, you know, one more year later up to like 94, 95. I'm just going through their starting five here. Um, you had, obviously, Mitch Richmond and Chris Mullen at small forward. Um, but point guard, you did not have your, your, your guy. You didn't have. Tim Hardaway. So you had Winston Garland, who was a vet guard, had been around. You also had Ralph Sampson. Yep, that Ralph Sampson, former uh, Houston Rockets, big, the, one of the Twin Towers um, there, as well as uh, just solid, kind of do the grunt work kind of le- job, Larry Smith. And so just going through the stats here, Winston Garland averaged 14.5 points, 4.2 rebounds, and 6.5 assists. Mitch Richmond at 22 points, 5.9 rebounds, and 4 assists tonight. Chris Mullen averaged 26 points tonight, 5 rebounds, and 5 assists. Larry Smith, 5 points, 8 rebounds, really what he was there for, as well as an assist and a half a game. And then at center, you had Ralph Sampson to start, um, 6 points, 5 rebounds, 1.3 assists. But then, being the injury-prone person that he was, unfortunately, he went down. And then Manute Bull, the late, great <laughs> shot-blocking center, came in, um... Average 3.9 points, 5.8 rebounds, and just under an assist a game. Didn't really get that three-point shot going that he would uh, be known for a little slingshot three, but he was there to kind of be an intimidating uh, vertical uh, defender for the, the Golden State Warriors. Um, as far as coaching staff, we already mentioned you had Don Nelson as the coach and, you know, known for Nelly Ball, playing small a lot, um, taking advantage of the rules of the time to make a potent offensive team, and that was his strengths, and, I mean, we already know all the greatness that he did, not only with Golden State, but later on with the Dallas Mavericks. Um, he had a year with the Knicks that people seem to forget, but um, he was there as well. And then Gary St. Jean, uh, who would become a later coach for the Warriors, was on the assistant coaching staff as well. Um, he would coach them during pretty much their one of their worst runs, which was like the late 90s. Um, just 
I mean, the Warriors had some bad years. They weren't always this great team that we know um, with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Jeremiah Green, all of them. But they had some ugly years. And uh, unfortunately, Gary St. Jean found himself um, at the helm during some of them. But that's not for right now. Um, pace, the Warriors were second. Really going up and down. They were fourth in points per game. Dead last defensively. They gave up 117 points a night. It was ridiculous. Uh, defensive rating, not horrible. Um, offensive rating, again, both were middle of the pack. Um, their expected win loss is 40 and 42, so they kind of up that, you know, just overachieved on that end even slightly with everything I did there. I'm going through some notables for this Warriors team. Chris Mullen played all 82 games for them, um, which was good because he would later be someone who, you know, battled injuries throughout. He was ninth in minutes played. He played a lot of them. Um, both him and Mitch Richmond take a lot of the offensive-minded categories for the Warriors that year. So both of them were in the top 20 in field goals made. Um, Mullen 4th, Richmond 19th. Both in the top 20 in field goals attempted. Mullen 7th, Richmond 13th. Um, Chris Mullen was 3rd in overall 2-point field goals made um, with 807. Both were in the top 20 with field goal attempts. Mullen 9th, Richmond 14th. Rod Higgins was actually 20th in the league in three-pointers made, which is surprising that Mullen and Richmond, both great outside shooters, didn't really adopt the three-ball. They were not in the top 20 in those threes made, but Rod, Hig- Rod Higgins was, so shout-out to him, steady uh, scoring backup guard. Field goals missed. Obviously, Richmond and Mullen were both there, 13th and 8th, respectively. They were also in the top two in free throws, both made and attempted. Uh, Larry Smith, again, a guy who knew his role, was there to grind and, and get rebounds, and that's what he did. He was 10th in the league with uh, 272 offensive rebounds. Winston Garland was 19th in assists. Uh, steals, Chris Mullen was a tear in the passing lanes. He was 10th there with Winston Garland right behind him at 11th. Manute Bull easily led the league that season in blocks, going um, first overall with 345. Uh, two players in the top 20 in points. Obviously, again, Mullen 4th and Richmond 14th. PR, Mullen was 9th. Blocks per game, Bull had an astounding 4.3 blocks per game. And Larry Smith really just takes over the rebounding uh, numbers. Uh, third in offensive rebound percentage, ninth in uh, total rebounding percentage. Um, just in general, he was on the glass. Um, defensive blocks plus minus, Manu Bull again showed up there. And then uh, in Vorp, value replacement player, uh, Chris Mullen was 12th overall. And that was really it for New Golden State Warriors. Again, defensively, they weren't playing that well. Um, that just was not their strength. That was not their focus. Offensively, they were solid. Um, again, you had two of the best bucket getters um, in Midge Richmond and Chris Mullen. Uh, Winston Garland chipped in some and Terry Teagle as well. But that was really it. And that was kind of where, you know, if you focused your energy on Mullen and Richmond, um, you weren't really getting a lot of high-scoring numbers out of the rest of these guys, just in general. Um, you had Steve Alford there. You had Ralph Sampson, who, again, um, he played 61 games, which was really good for him. But by that point, he really wasn't a scorer of that type, and he wasn't a focus as well. A la- uh, Terry Teagle and Winston Garland get you a couple of points, you know, middle of the pack between 10 and 15 points, but they weren't really getting you much more than that. Larry Smith wasn't in the game to score. Um, Rod Higgins could, but he was really getting you 10 a night, and that was it. So you take, you know, the obvious defensive struggles and the lack of offensive depth outside of Chris Mullen and Mitch Richmond, and you have the recipe for the team that you had, which was a 43-39 team. Not bad. They would definitely get better, but this was their ceiling as of now until we get to the playoffs where they actually did something a little interesting. So we'll touch on that when we get on the playoffs. One game ahead of the Golden State Warriors were the Denver Nuggets, who finished 44-38. and 38. Um, Definitely another of the great offensive iterations of the Nuggets, who used that high altitude and fast-breaking style to get points up in a hurry. 
defense was not a concern for them. Uh, they finished 35 and six at home, nine and 32 on the road. They, yeah, their home court was definitely an advantage there because you could see outside of that, it was really just a track meet, and other teams could play even an iota of defense. And you know, <laughs> I guess we'd uh, go home with that L. Um, against Eastern Conference opponents, Nuggets broke even at 12 and 12. Against Western Conference opponents. Nuggets went 32 and 26, so definitely in the edge of their opponents there. They went nine and four in November, eight and seven in December, five and eleven in January. A little rough winter there, and they finished with three uh, winning months: eight and four on February, eight and six on March, and then uh, break even six and six on April. So that was them, just in terms of winning. Now we have to go their starting lineup and their depth chart here. So starting lineup for the Nuggets usually. Um, and this, is for the most part, was Michael Adams, Wayne Cooper, Alex English, Fat Lever, and Danny Shays. And offensively, you were getting a lot of your firepower from a few guys. One notable was just the great Alex English. Um, he actually led with 26 points a night, 26.5 points a night. Um, Fat Lever did a little bit of everything, but he was second with just under 20 points at 19.8. Michael Adams had 18.5. And then you did have 34-year-old Walter Davis, who was still playing going strong um even in year 12 at this point with 15 points a night and then danny shays who could do a little bit around the basket had a decent little mid-range jumper had 12 a night for the nuggets kind of equal opportunity alex english going finishing along the break getting open for some nice uh 15 and 20 foot jump shots um and that was the nuggets game up and down up and down converting easy opportunities and making shots um just around when they could that was kind of how they got their buckets so Going into their depth chart here, and what we see is that you had Adams at point, averaging 18 points, three assists, three three rebounds, and six assists tonight. Fat Lever again. He was playing a shooting guard, but he did a little bit of everything. 19.8 points, 9.3 rebounds, and 7.9 assists. I feel like he would be the closest. I obviously I want to say prototype for a Russell Westbrook, because their games were definitely different. Um, but just being. A, a triple threat at all at all uh, statistical categories from points, rebounds, and assists, and just doing a little bit of everything. That's what Fat Lever could do for you. Um, Alex English had a solid year: twenty-six point five points, four rebounds a night, and four just over four and a half assists as well. Um, at power forward, you did have a. Uh, I already mentioned um, Wayne Cooper, who was really a center, but he played there. And then you also had um, Bill Hanslick, who had four point nine points, two point three rebounds, and two assists a night as well. Um, and then to go along, of course, with Wayne Cooper, who had six points, seven rebounds, and an assist a game. At center, Danny Shays, 12.8 points, 6.6 rebounds, 1.4 assists. And this dude, I have to give a brief little highlight on Danny Shays because he played an astoundingly long time in the league. 1,131 games. He started his career in 1981 with the Utah Jazz, and he finished it in 1998 with the Orlando Magic. As a 39-year-old center, and was still starting as many as 33 games just the year before at age 38 for the Orlando Magic. And this was obviously not a great time for the Magic with little depth and Shaq being gone. Um, but just the longevity there was pretty crazy for him. Um, like I said, up to age 38, he was still playing 17 minutes a night. Uh, crazy for Shays. But that was one of his better offensive seasons, um, only bested by the season before where he averaged 13 points and 8 rebounds a night. You weren't getting him confused with a high caliber or high quality starting center, but he was someone who could do the job and do it pretty decently. So there's uh, what you had there. As far as um, player notables, just things to kind of keep an eye out as far as the team itself. 
Offensively, a lot of the stuff happened for the Nuggets was around Alex English. In fact, he was kind of their main guy. He played all 82 games, 17th in minutes played, 2nd in field goals converted, 1st in field goals attempted, 2nd in 2-point field goals um, knocked down, uh, which doesn't really differentiate too much um, because a lot of his shots were from the 2-point variety. 1st um, in attempts there, 3-pointers was Michael Adams, who had such a crazy, interesting shot for him. It was like a rocket launcher with one hand, and I loved watching it. Couldn't really shoot like that, could never see how he did it, but he would knock down threes like no one's business. He finished first in three-pointers, both made and attempted. He went 166 for 466 from three. Um, Alex English also was first in field goals missed. Um, Fat Lever, again, just solid. 15th in assists in the league that year, 6th in steals that year, Ninth in minutes played that year, 13th in PR at 20.6, 11th in steal percentage, um, 8th in box plus minus. He was 19th in turnover percentage, but he was also 11th in defensive win shares, 8th in value over a placement player, obviously that VORP we were mentioning, 14th in offensive box plus minus, and 17th in defensive box plus minus, which is just crazy. He was also 20th in the top 20 in defensive rating. And still, and still percentage as well. So, just insane. Um, usage percentage, usage rate. Um, Alex English, and then off the bench, Walter Davis, who got a lot of time in. Again, Walter Davis, great greyhound, small forward. Played with the Suns, played with the Nuggets, played with the Blazers. Um, just did a lot of damage there. Um, and even in this altitude, being able to go up and down at 34, finished just under 50% from the field. Did shoot a little bit of threes, but didn't really shoot them very well. 29% from three. Um, 51% from two-point range. That those 15 points we already mentioned, one rebound and two and a half assists tonight. That's basically what's coming in was to fill it up, and he did his job well, even at his advanced age, basketball-wise. Coach Doug Moe for the Nuggets, a longtime Nuggets coach there, um, and then your assistant coaches was Alan Bristow, who would later become um, a coach with some success with the um, New Orleans uh, Hornets or Charlotte Hornets, and then you had Doug Moe Jr., like father, like son, <laughs> starting there as well. So that was it for the Nuggets. Again, offensively minded, they were there. Um, that was kind of how they were geared to play. Defense was really an undernote aside from Fat Lever, who was kind of a do-it-all guy, who I did not mention was only 6'3". Again, Russ comparisons again, but a little bit of a do-it-all kind of guy. And again, offensively, that was really their strength. Defensively, um, not too great, even though, I mean, they were eighth in defensive rating, but I mean, it's 80s guys. Everything was noisy as far as stats on that side back then. So that was interesting. And again, they played at uh, Mc, McNichols Sports Arena. Home court advantage was definitely there, middle of the pack in attendance. They used that offensive uh, advantage, that home court, that high altitude, those rocking multicolored uniforms to really do some damage to opponents. They were second in points per game, and they rode that straight to the first round. And we'll get to them again like we will all the teams we get to the playoffs. But um, they were what they were, which was a high-powered offensive team. End of story. <laughs> And we keep chugging along. We are moving on in the standings here. Just finished the Nuggets, and now we are on our way to the Houston Rockets. Now, this Houston Rockets team, um, although successful, were not the team of the mid-90s as far as um, play style was. Obviously, um, Rudy Tomjanovich, Hall of Fame coach, would lead them in that category, but he wasn't there as of yet. Um, we're still with uh, Coach Don Chaney at the time. And we'll get more into the coaching staff in a second. But Rockets finished 45-37. and 37. 
They were 31 and 10 at home, 14 and 27 on the road. They were 12 and 12 against Eastern Conference opponents, 33 and 25 against Western Conference opponents. And just breaking down month by month, um, every month they had, and this is the beginning of that, they either finished with a winning record or break broke even. Um, going nine and six in November, nine and five in December, seven and six in January, six and six in February, eight and eight in March, and then six and six again in April. Um, play style, this wasn't again that Rudy Tomjanovich style where you have Hakeem Olajuwon as like the offensive fulcrum, although he was back then, and you had outside shooting just spacing the floor throughout, except that really the power forward position um, going up to like 95. Um, this was more of a traditional 80s format. You had your, you know, you had Hakeem as your center there. You had your power forward who would kind of play around that same area, rebound. If they could space the floor even to the foul line, that'd be amazing, but obviously spacing was totally different back then. The guards weren't breakout like three-point shooters who were knocking down shots like that. Um, in this case, you did have two players who could knock down threes, um, but that wasn't entirely their game, um, and it showed. I mean, they're starting guards, and I'm going to go into this in a minute, but Sleepy Floyd took the most on the team. He took three a night um, for 37%, which wasn't bad back then. And then after that, Mike Woodson, yes, former coach Mike Woodson, uh, took one a night, um, and he shot 34% from three. So percentages, not horrible, but that really wasn't their focus of the game. It was really get the ball to Kikim, play outside of that. Um, you had Otis Thorpe, who's very much a traditional power forward there. And then your point guards, uh, shooting guards, were more distributors who could shoot, again, from that 15 to 20 feet. I think I say it a lot, but that was really the requirement for a starting guard back then in the 80s. It didn't really stretch out to three till much, much later. So going into their depth um, and just running through, you had at point guard, I already mentioned Sleepy Floyd. Um, yes, the same Sleepy Floyd would go off for that crazy uh, fourth quarter against the Lakers a couple seasons back as a member of the Warriors. Um, he was pretty much going, I want to say to the tail end of his career, he said a couple solid seasons, but this was really, you know, more of that last little chapter there. 14 points, 3.7 rebounds, and 8.6 assists per night. You had Mike Woodson, kind of did a little bit of everything, 12.2 points, 2.4 rebounds, and 2.5 and assists. Um, Buck Johnson played small forward, and this is another thing. Between the small forwards, Buck Johnson, Derek Chivas, and Purvis Shorts, you did not have a lot of outside shooting. Again, these are guys who played around that same foul line inside kind of game. But Buck Johnson, 9.6 points, 4.3 rebounds, and 1.9 assists. At power forward was Otis Thorpe, 16.7 points, 9.6 rebounds, and 2.5 assists. And then, of course, Akeem Olajuwon, who finished with 24 points, 13.5 rebounds, and just under two assists a night. Um, Noble backups, again, for the Rockets, you had two... I got a point guard, shooting guard. They were really both kind of point guards. Didn't really do a whole lot. Um, Frank Johnson, four points, one rebound, and two and a half assists tonight. Alan Lavelle, long time um, Rockets guard, uh, really just flaming out at the end here. Three points, one rebound, two and a half assists, just under that. Derek Chivas, 9.3 points, 3.2 rebounds, and an assist. Walter Berry, Eight points, three rebounds, and an assist a game. And then at center, you had Chuck Nevitt, which is just hilarious. I read Chuck Nevitt. I think Chuck Norris. Um, don't ask me why. But he averaged a point and an assist. It just under an, a point and a rebound just under an assist a game. And then Tim McCormick, uh, five points, three rebounds, and under an assist per game. So depth was an issue for this Rockets team. I, I feel like just going through some of these names, I... Um, I'm kind of getting that feel. I hope you are getting that understanding as well. Um, Hakeem Olajuwon being the nexus for them offensively. 
a lot going through him. Um, and for the most part, you know, 48 games, the starting lineup was Sleepy Floyd, um, Buck Johnson, Akeem Olajuwon, Otis Thorpe, and Mike Woodson. And then you would have Purvis Short come in uh, for Buck Johnson for, for 16 games. And then you had uh, Walter Berry come in for, um, again, that small forward spot for a couple games, 14 games. And that's kind of where all of the fluctuating happened. Sleepy Floyd played a lot of those lineups. Um, and for that starting lineup, it was decent. They weren't completely horrible. That was kind of where their bread was buttered. They had some synergy there. Especially because you had three players on this Rockets team who played all 82 games. So durable. Otis Thorpe, Sleepy Floyd, and Hakeem Olajuwon. You had two who were in the top 20 minutes played. Otis Thorpe was 6th, and Hakeem Olajuwon was 12th. And Otis Thorpe was such a great like running mate for Hakeem. I was really glad he played with him this season. And basically the next six seasons up to 1994, finally you know winning a championship with the Rockets before being traded uh, for Clyde Drexler as the Rockets won another. But it was really good for me, um, satisfying to see someone who was in the trenches through the good and the bad, um, finally able to come out on top with the ring. I'm sure it was filling for Otis Thorpe, but he was really Hakeem's kind of right-hand man throughout there, especially after um, Ralph Sampson left as the Twin Towers failed experiment outside of 1986 there. Um, Hakeem one did a lot, obviously. He was 8th in field goals made, 10th in field goals attempted, 6th in 2-point field goals made, 7th in uh, field goal attempts. Uh, he was also 6th or 5th in free throw attempts, 10th in free throws made, 9th in free throws missed. He was 5th in offensive rebounding um, numbers, 1st in defensive rebounding, 1st in total rebounds, 3rd in steals, 10th in points, 3rd um, in blocks. I mean, he just did a lot. 1st in rebounds per game, as already mentioned, 10th in points per game, 4th in blocks per game, 10th in offensive rebound percentage, 1st in defensive rebound percentage, 4th in PR, 2nd in total rebounding percentage, 11th in usage, 8th in win shares per 48, 7th in win shares in total, 1st in defensive win shares, Fifth and defensive blocks plus minus seventh in value of replacement player. I'm just kind of rambling on and on, just more and more of a Kim Elijah one because that was the story of the 1989 Houston Rockets. I'm am having a fever, and the only solution is some more Kim Elijah one. Like that is what you were getting there. Um, aside from that, Sleepy Floyd was sixth in assists per game, 18th and three point percentage. Um, and Otis Thorpe did some damage as well, seventh in field goal percentage. Um, he was 20th in true shooting. He was solid there um, defensively as well. 11th in effective field goal percentage. He was also up there with Elijah one rebounding. He was 10th in offensive rebounding. So he, he filled in the gaps there. But if you look through the numbers for this season for the Houston Rockets, you're really finding three players, and that was really their strengths. Otis Thorpe, Hakeem Olajuwon, and Sleepy Floyd all up and down for any of the notables as far as players in the league leaderboards. So that was it. They went as far as Olajuwon could take them. And at the time, Olajuwon hadn't quite – he was great athletically gifted as we all know um fluid in the post a little bit of a hothead still didn't really come around till later on in his career we kind of cooled down but they were going as far as Akeem Olajuwon could take them and Akeem Olajuwon could take them back then to the playoffs and, and that was at least that was guaranteed um your miles may vary or his miles varied on how far after that depending on the matchup uh coach already mentioned Don Chaney assistant coaches Carol Dawson and the future great Rudy Tom Jonovich now that's really it for the Houston Rockets, so we are going to move right along to the next team. All right, so we are making our way. It feels like we're just going one and one and one, and I'm just trying to keep track of all the numbers and everything here, but we are with the Philadelphia 76ers, who finished with the 11th best record in 1989, going 46 and 36. They were 30 and 11 at home. They were 16 and 25 away. Um, 
they were 31-25 against Eastern Conference opponents, 15-11 against Western Conference opponents, and they went 10-5 in November, 5-9 in December, 9-5 in January, 6-5 in February, 9-7 in March, and 7-5 in April. Coaching staff, Jim Lyman was the head coach through the entire season um, for them, and then they only had one assistant coach, former 76ers player Fred Carter. All right, so... 1989, this was really Charles Barkley's team just throughout. Um, he was the straw that stirred the drink. Um, definitely brought no end to wisecracks, points, rebounds, blocks, um, on-court altercations, just in general. We all know the complete Charles Barkley experience. And the standard starting lineup for the 76ers that season was Maurice Cheeks and Hersey Hawkins at the guards with Charles Barkley at small forward. Um, Cliff Robinson at power forward and Mike Jaminski at center. And so we're just going to go through those numbers here. Maurice Cheeks um, really getting to the end of his run with Philadelphia. Average 11 points, 2.6 rebounds, 7.8 assists. Really steady guard. Got the 76 in their offense. Was um, a very, um, I want to say, measured fast breaker as far as being calculated and getting his points there. Had a decent uh, mid range jump shot. Uh, you had Hersey Hawkins who would become a much better uh, shooting guard and was solid back then just to give anyone some shooting after Andrew Tony um, had retired due to his foot issues. 76 really had a problem finding a reliable shooting guard. And so Hersey Hawkins filled that need 15 points, 2.8 rebounds and three assists tonight. Uh, at small forward also swinging a power forward was Charles Barkley, who really did a little bit of everything there. 25.8 points, 12.5 rebounds, 4.1 assists, 16 re- win shares just craziness. Cliff Robinson, 15 points, 5 rebounds, and 2 assists, um, but he only played 416 minutes. Ron Anderson got the majority there. He played. He had 16 points, 5 rebounds, and 1.7 assists. And then Mike Jaminski, who, you know, rebounded well, decent little jumper, finished around the basket, 17 points, 9.4 rebounds, and 1.7 assists. Um, notable players off the bench, you had Scott Brooks, yes, Wizards coach Scott Brooks, 5.2 rebounds, 5.2 points, 1.1 rebounds, and 3.7 assists. You had Derek Smith, um, a swingman who really became a, a star out of nowhere in Los Angeles, um, and then fortunately had knee issues and was traded to Sacramento and now was on Philadelphia. 7.8 points a game, 2.4 rebounds, and just under two assists. And that was really it. You didn't have a lot of depth here. David Wingate, four points, one rebound, two assists. Gerald Henderson, former uh, Celtic uh, player, I guess you could say legend, because any Celtic who won a ring is immediately a legend. Uh, six points every rebound and 2.2 assists per night. And that was really it for the 76ers there. As far as your notables, just in general, I, I bet you can imagine that Charles Barkley was up there in terms of, um, you know, just leading in most categories. And you would be correct. He really did a lot. I'm going to run through an attempt to get my voice together to find out everything that this guy did here um, because it was a lot uh, in general. He was already starting what would become a monster 1990 season. Don't even get me started on that. I did mention this before in my MVP um, talk uh, feels like months ago in terms of the numbers that he piled up um, for that team and in, in not walking away with that MVP. But in 89, he was 10th in minutes played, 14th in field goals made, um, 15 and two-point field goals, um, and that's important for Barkley because even though he wasn't the greatest three-point shooter, he shot them as if he were. He was third in free throws made, second in free throws attempted, first in offensive rebounds, 
Um, he was also in the top 20 in total rebounds, finishing third. He was sixth in defensive reboundings, finishing sixth. And again, this is a six foot five, six foot six dude here. 14th in turnovers, 9th in points, 2nd in field goal percentage, 1st in 2-point field goal percentage at a whopping 63%, 8th in points per game, 4th in minutes per game, playing 39 minutes a night. Jeez. Alright, that's just crazy. 1st in true shooting percentage at 65%, 2nd in effective field goal percentage, 2nd in offensive rebound percentage, um, 19th in defensive rebound percentage, 1st in offensive rating, 4th in win box plus minus, 3rd in win shares per 48, 4th in VORP, Third in offensive box plus minus, second in offensive win shares, and second in total win shares. So, across the board, I, I've named just rattled right off a variety of numbers, and Charles Barkley was at or in the top 10 in many of them. Aside from that, Mike Jaminski and Ron Anderson were in the top 20 in uh, free throw percentage. Um, Hersey, Hawkins, Her, Hersey Hawkins was fourth in three point percentage um, at 42%, and he was 18th in three pointers made with 71 knocked down from him. Mike Jaminski was also up there with Barkley in defensive rebounding and total rebounding, while Maurice Cheeks, again steady, was 16th in assist totaled up in altogether with 554. Um, and that was the 76 for you. Um, a lot of their plays went through Barkley, who did a little bit of everything, even when it came to shooting the three, and again, not being the best at it, sh shooting two a night, which for him was probably one more three than he should have been shooting, especially when he shot 21% from there, but he was such a beast in everything else. Did I mention that 61% from two-point range? Um, that's just kind of crazy. And and that was really it. I mean, he didn't really have the best of supporting cast in Philadelphia. I think that was talked about, and when you bring up Charles Barkley's career, you have to bring up that by the time that he entered the league, you had players like Julius Irving, like Moses Malone, like Bobby Jones, like Andrew Tony fading away, either due to age or injury, or just being out of the league, um, just in general. And that was what Barkley had, and the 76ers front office did not do a great job of kind of buttressing that talent with really good pieces. In fact, they made some boneheaded trades, did a horrible trade getting rid of Moses Malone, and did not give Barkley the help that he needed, which ultimately led him to flee to Phoenix and finish his career there. So, this is really just another season where they were not a very good team, if not for Barkley. Um, you had some good play from, like I said, a Mike Jaminski, Hersey Hawkins, Maurice Cheeks, and um, a Richard Anderson in this case, but you weren't winning a championship, and I don't think you thought that you were contending very far with this roster as currently assembled. And they didn't, so, you know. We'll get there, like I said, when we run over the um, playoffs, but uh, they were going as far as Charles Barkley could take them, and just like Akeem Olajuwon, back in 1989, the answer for both was not very far. All right, and that will do it for the middle of the pack on this next episode coming up to you real soon. Not going to put a day on it because, you know, on NBA Today, especially during quarantine, <laughs> who knows what day we're in, what hour. It is crazy. This is crazy, y'all. But um, we'll finish my 1989 Corbin replay machine with the top 10 teams in the NBA and then go through the playoffs, ultimately going, ending with the, you know, unlikely winner or team that really should have been in the mix altogether for uh, the 1989 NBA season. Hope this is interesting. I definitely plan on improving the quality of this as far as maybe doing more stories, doing more NBA deep dives and maybe just focusing on playoff series and such. But I really wanted to try to see, you know, just how I could do one a holistic take of the NBA season in general. Just kind of run through all the numbers that I could, run through some interesting players at the time, 
you know, things of that sort. Whatever input I had just from watching these games that I could add to this um, was important for me. And so I'm glad I was able to kind of get started on this and kind of continue this along. So we will see how this goes. But um, yeah, coming soon, we're going to do the next 10 teams. Um, just going to run through them since it's not really, I mean, anyone's common knowledge. Uh, Supersonics, Bulls, the Bucks, the Jazz, the Knicks, the Hawks, the Suns, Lakers, Cavs, and Pistons. We will go through all of them along with the conclusion of the playoffs as well to finally close out this 89 season recap. But until then, I want y'all to wash your hands. Again, maintain that responsible social distancing. Watch some classic hoops. Why not? What do you have to lose? And take care, y'all. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.